you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, I trust you're having a wonderful week as we head into the new year here. A week that's filled with meaningful productive and profitable work. You know, a lot of times people think, well, if I'm going to do something that I really enjoy, then I have to give up any hope of ever doing well financially. Well, guess what? It works the other way around. I mean, just think about the logic of this. I mean, golly, that's a line from one of the little kids movies that I hear from my granddaughter all the time. Let's think about the logic of this. Forget which one it is. Anyway, let's think about the logic of this. Do you really think that it's easier to make money doing something that you detest or doing something you really love? Well, I hope you see enough examples out there and are able to talk to people who confirm the fact that it's a whole lot easier to make money doing something you really love. And it doesn't mean then that there's some kind of an artificial trade-off that if you do something you love, you're going to never be compensated for it. Nah, this is where we figure out how to do both. We'll look for and solutions. Some of the questions today have to do with just that, where people pose artificial dichotomies, thinking that if I choose this, then I can't have that. No. One of the principles from Stephen Covey is that we look for and solutions, not either or. We've got some today that will give great examples of that. We're going to be going through some of the questions that you, the readers, listeners, have submitted during the week I love this time where we go through and just choose those that I think will have value for all of us. Got plenty of those today. Here's some of the things that we'll be covering in today's 48 Days Online Radio Show. I want to talk a little bit about why Ben Franklin was so successful. He had a birthday this week. He's one of the guys that I look back at frequently and think, how was one guy so stinking prolific in terms of what he turned out? I mean, the things that he invented wrote and did seemed to be beyond comprehension that it would be able to be done by one man. Anyway, I want to talk about that a little bit, but here's some of some of your reader questions as well. Is it selfish or are we abandoning any hope of close relationships with family? If we move away, interesting question. The questionnaire in this particular case knows a little bit about my background and knows some of my children as well knows that we are spread all over the world and uh, wants some uh, input as to what she's hearing from her own family. Dan, I've been working on the, in the corporate world for almost a year now and absolutely hate it. Dan, today I had a lunch meeting with our senior pastor and he feels like it's time for me to move on. Mm -hmm. A lot of dynamics involved in one of those meetings Dan, I was wondering how you survive in serving people when you love God, but really have no tolerance for people. <laughs> well, there's a great question. We can unpack that one. Dan, I would really love to have my cake and eat it too, but I can't find a way to integrate my work and my family. Now, there's a pretty basic one. Any of you struggling with that? How do you give all the efforts and energy that you think you need to, want to, to your work and still have time to do those same things, devote time and energy to your family. Can it be done? We hear a lot about balance. Is that just an artificial something that can't exist? Is that just a fantasy in the sky, smoke and mirrors, or can we really have excellence in both of those areas? Or do we always have to choose 
between success either in our work or in our family. Dan, how can I get my wife to expand her cake decorating cake decorating into a real business? Well, I hope we have time to get to that one because the the question, the way that it's worded, I think there are some underlying issues that have more to do with just how do you, in fact, expand cake direct decorating into a real business. Well, if you've got a question, you can go to the podcast link at 48days.com. Leave your question there. Be happy to include it in an upcoming show. Also, we have a I have a phone number. You can leave an audio question. You don't hear me integrate those very often in here. Today I'm going to. There's one that is just too cute in the way that it is presented and too concise, and I'm going to integrate it. But usually just for sake of time, I just read and I go much quicker than what most people do in stating their questions. So I give a quick synopsis and then just go right into kind of unpacking that. But you can, in fact, call this number. I'll leave you the number and you can call and leave an audio question. And sometimes I do include those as an actual audio question. The number is 304-729-4848. You know, we do a lot with the 48 around here. 48 comes from one of the books I wrote a few years ago, 48 Days to the Work You Love. 48 Days being what I think is a reasonable time frame to make a change in your life. If you don't like where you are, hey, that's cool. A lot of people start there, but if you look at what's available in terms of understanding where you are, if you get the advice and opinion of other people, if you do a little research, narrow down, dig a little deeper, choose the best one and act, I think 48 days is enough timeline to do that entire process. So if you roll into day 49 and you're still doing what you were doing back on day one, I'll still be your friend, but you know what? I'm probably going to move on in terms of coaching and giving advice because I think that's enough time. And I think something then tells me that you are choosing to stay where you are. Hey, that's cool. You know, that's fine with me. You make the choice. But at that point, it's your choice. It's certainly not something that you're forced into or trapped in. We all have enough options out there. We can move out of that. And I think we can do it in 48 days. If in fact, we really are serious about making a move. Well, we're going to be going through here. I want to give you an update on some of the events we've got coming up at 48 days. Um, I want to remind you about involvement in 48 days.net, the growing social networking group, no cost to be involved there. It's just a social networking group, but more and more people there are linking arms, sharing resources, giving advice and opinion to each other so they can more quickly accelerate the growth and success of business ideas that they have. So if you're not a member, I encourage you to check it out. You can go there and just peruse it. You just go there and just see what other people are doing. Look at some of the discussions. But if it's something you think you could benefit from, then I would encourage you to do that. Here's our quotation for the day. This comes from Jack Welch. I saw this this morning on Craig Kitch's newsletter from Jack Welch, who said, change before you have to. Now there's a concise five word quotation with a meaning change before you have to. I love that. If you wait around, if you're always just reactive to what's already happened out there, you're always catching up. If you take the initiative, it's like the old thing they ask uh, Wayne Gretzky, you know, why he was such a great hockey player. And he said, I always went to where the puck was going to be. I mean, the average player just looks at the puck and goes directly toward it. And by the time they get there, it's gone. He says, I went to where the puck was going to be. Now I've expanded on that a little bit, but that's essentially the meaning that he gave. And, and I like this from Jack Welch change before you have to, 
I mean, don't wait until you're forced into making a change. Change before you have to, and you'll find better options, and you're more in the driver's seat when you, in fact, do that. Now, I told you I wanted to talk a little bit about why Ben Franklin was so successful. He would have had a birthday this week. January 17th was Big Ben's birthday. He would have been, let's see, he would have been 306 years old. So I never had the chance to sit down with Ben and talk to him. Would have loved to do that done that wouldn't wouldn't that be a hoot sit down with ben franklin and talk to him but but i mean here's a guy who saw opportunities that others did not see and a lot of what i talk about on this radio show is exactly that it's not about being smarter than the guy next door you know having better degrees or more certifications or licensure no it's about seeing things that other people don't see now ben invented for us the lightning rod bifocals the Franklin stove, the odometer, the glass harmonica. And yes, that is, I'm not leaving off an H. It is harmonica. It's a different instrument than the harmonica. You can check it out. He formed both the first public library and the first fire department in Pennsylvania. Now, we also, of course, attribute him to the invention of electricity. Now, obviously, that's kind of a stretch. He, he didn't invent electricity, but he certainly harnessed it and showed us how to produce more of it and showed us how we could use it. Can you imagine how much we take for granted today based on the conveniences that Ben Franklin made possible? But now here's what I want you to really hear. Here's the important part about who Ben Franklin was. When Ben Franklin was 21 years old, he personally selected the additional members of a small group had about 12 guys in this group and he called it the Hunta. Now it's that that's J U N T O. And you can just go online and research that. You'll find lots of information about that group. All the members lived in Philadelphia. So they were all real close together. They could get together physically. They represented a, a pretty diverse spectrum of businesses. So they weren't all plumbers or carpenters or printers as Ben Franklin was. No, they represented other businesses. And these were not just some, elite white collar group. These were just regular working guys who wanted to enrich their lives in every way possible. So they got together on Friday nights, first in a tavern. I mean, these were pretty informal, fun, loving meetings. These were not some serious, cerebral, silent kind of meetings. Now the guys got together and had fun. So they met in a tavern first, later in one of the guy's houses, but they discussed moral, political, business, scientific topics of the day. But here's really the point. Clearly, the Hunter was Franklin's creation. He led the group by example. While he considered the other men to have similar intellectual interest, he recognized that the unifying force of this diverse group was, and I want you to hear this if you hear nothing else today, Here's the real key of that group. It was an inquiring spirit and a devotion to self-improvement. An inquiring spirit and devotion to self-improvement. Now, if you have those characteristics, you're going to stand out from the crowd pretty quickly. If you combine that with meeting with other people who also have those characteristics, an inquiring spirit and devotion to self-improvement, you're going to exponentially leverage the things that you're able to do in your own life. Now, these are just, again, basic 
routine guys got together, but they shared and they were all committed to having inquiring spirits and a devotion to self-improvement. Now I encourage you to find such a group of people. Now, one of the new products I'm working on, my part is finished. They're just doing a graphic design right now is how to create your own mastermind group. I deal extensively in there with what Benjamin Franklin did on his group is because it's such a great example of what we can do even today. Um, I'll have that ready in a couple of weeks. I'm talking here the second week in January and I know it's really getting close again. They're just doing some, the cover design and so on. I think what I'll do with that is, is I'll put it up as a free download for a week or so. Now it's going to be a product and we'll sell thousands of these. You know, it's been a hot topic for years, but for listeners, just, I'll give you, you know, I'll give you a heads up on that. But for listeners and people who are involved at 48days.net, I'm going to give you maybe a week where you can just download it free. I mean, happy to do that. And um, so keep your ears tuned. We'll let you know on that coming up shortly before the end of month of January for sure. All right, let's go into some of the questions. Again, you're listening to Dan Miller on the 48 days online radio show. If you have a question, you can go to the podcast link at 48 days.com. Leave your question there. I value those coming in. Look forward to seeing them every week. Claudia, Claudia says, Dan, my husband and I are embarking on a new adventure in our lives. We are finally living purposefully with goals and direction. We started a website, rise365.com to chronicle our adventures and keep us accountable. And this has led to raised eyebrows and some mixed reviews from family. One of our dreams is to be location independent with so, so that we could potentially live anywhere in the world. These are some arguments we were told when we expressed this particular dream. Number one, this is not being responsible. Children should stay in the area where they grew up and support their family. If you leave where you grew up, you're abandoning all relationships with your family. Number two, you will never form meaningful relationships and community if you move around. Number three, the only reason you should move is to be part of a church body in a different location. Claudia continues, Dan, I know your children live in different areas of the world and you've supported them. How has living so far apart impacted your family? I also know you left the community you grew up in and have made big moves to different locations with your own family multiple times. Have you found meaningful community since moving? What were your motives for doing so? Is it selfish or are we abandoning any hope of close relationships with family if we move away? Well, Claudia, I love your heartfelt questions. Claudia shares in another email that she and her husband grew up conservative Mennonite as I did. Now in that culture, there's much more focus on the things that she is identifying here. There is that sense of not only just the expectation, but also the obligation of being close to family. When conservative Mennonite or Amish uh, parents grow old, they aren't expected to be sent off to a nursing home somewhere. You build a dotty house on the property and keep the parents there or in your own house, the primary house until they die. There's that sense of family, nothing wrong with that. And I, I embrace that, but to put that out there as something that is the model then for every single family is certainly not realistic. Now I grew up in, in a conservative Mennonite home up in Ohio. I hated the winters 
met Joanne. We got married. She was 17 when I met her. We got married really young, hung on to each other for dear life as we tried to figure out this thing called life together. But we elected very early on to leave our biological families behind. Joanne's mother, she certainly would never be listening to this, but uh, uh, she she's deteriorated cognitively at this point uh, beyond any recognition. And I don't say this in a way to be hateful, but she was certainly one of the most hostile, sarcastic, angry, dysfunctional women I had ever met in my life. And Joanne and I chose very early on that we would not choose to live in the same state as her mother. Now that may sound kind of harsh and it's not just a typical mother-in-law kind of thing. Believe me, I, at this point I take care of all my mother-in-law's affairs. And she told me a golly, not too long ago that I was the only man that she ever truly loved, which is kind of interesting. She was married three times. So, you know, it's not that I haven't, don't have a, a healing relationship with her, but we decided that it was not healthy for our family to live in the same state as my mother-in-law. Again, that may sound kind of harsh, but we also wanted to get out of the cold Ohio winters. We didn't enjoy that. So we kept moving South. And as I went back to graduate school, we moved South, went to, well, ended up in Kentucky and Tennessee an area that we live in today. But in the interim, we also went out to California for a few years. I mean, we've been all over the place. We've moved a lot of times. Now, has that meant that we just end up, you know, with, with no close relationships? No, my goodness, no. I mean, Joanne and I, I mean, we, we have deep, deep, caring, trusting, loving relationships with people. But not only here, not only here where we live in Franklin, Tennessee, which we certainly do, but also in other parts of the world. If geography is the only thing that dictates where we have relationships and the kind of relationships we have, then we certainly are limited. I can have deep, trusting, caring relationships with somebody that lives in California or somebody who lives in England, you know, which I do. Those relationships rise above the geography that may or may not connect us physically once a week. So I think relationships rise above that as your relationships certainly have the potential for doing as the relationships with my children do. Now that's a great example because we have three children. Kevin, our oldest, when he was 17, we allowed him to go to Colorado. We were living in Kentucky at the time. We allowed him to go to Colorado where he started training as a professional bicycle racer, that training and experience then in racing took him to England. He lived in Holland for a couple of years. He lived all over Europe as he raced and built his credibility as a professional bicycle racer. Then he came back to the States and he raced for many years here, got married, married a gal from Austin, Texas. But even as they were married and lived close by, they kept talking about God, just this kind of pull to Colorado. He loved the memories of when he had grown up racing and living in Colorado. We encouraged him in that. They ultimately got to the point where they thought, you know what, if we're ever going to go now is the time we helped them pack up, helped them move. And they moved off to Colorado where they've lived now for many years. They live up almost at 10,000 feet. It's way up in the hills. They live in an Aspen Grove. They built a beautiful, big 5,000 square foot house a couple years ago. They have seven children. 
Now we're, we're Joanna and I are Nana and Papa to those kids. Are we out of mind, out of sight? I mean, out of sight, out of mind with those kids. No, we talk to them daily. We Skype. I mean, there can be something pop up on my phone as I'm recording here from one of the grandkids. We have open door connections with them. We go out there frequently. They have a motor home. They travel a lot. I mean, we see each other five or six times a year. I mean, that's as many times as what a lot of people who live across town see each other. So even in being together physically, we are not limited, especially in today's environment where it's so easy to, to travel. And then with telecommunications, the way it is, yeah, we're very connected with them. They love where they live. We are thrilled that they love where they live. We do not love living where, where it's going to snow 10 months out of the year. We don't understand it, but that's what they love. Now, my second son, Jared lives in Mombasa, Kenya. That's a little farther away. Even yet Mombasa, Kenya, they live right on the Indian ocean. They have a condo right on the beach. They get up in the morning, they walk out, they can walk a half a mile out into the ocean. And it may be depending on the tide. It may only be up to their waist when they walk half a mile out in the clear water. They love, they think it's the most gorgeous, fantastic place in the world to live. Why don't we encourage them to live in Nashville, Tennessee? No, I of all people would be hypocritical if I didn't embrace in my own children, them living the life they were destined to live. And that doesn't mean just being under mom and daddy's skirts here in Franklin, Tennessee, they can live anywhere they want to. My sons are living where they seem to thrive at this season in their life. Now, if they should change that and they want to come back here to Franklin, I mean, that's fine. But also I ingrained in them very early on that we were going to live a life where we were not pinned down geographically. We have the same options they do. If we decided that we wanted to live in Colorado tomorrow morning, we could move in 24 hours time and it would really make no difference in my business anyway. I purposely set it up so that it would be like that. I mean, Joanna and I are going and a couple of weeks here, we're going on a little excursion down to Hatchet K. It's, it's a private island down off the coast. Well, it's down off the coast of Central America. It's off from Belize. We'll fly to Belize and then we fly in a small plane to Placentia. And then we take a boat 17 miles out to a private island. And there's only a, a few little cabanas on, on the island. And we're, we're going to spend a week out there. Now we, you know, we talk a lot about with the kind of things that I do as long as I have high-speed internet service, I can continue writing, speaking, interviewing, doing podcasting, all the things that I do. I really can. Joanne loves the water. She loves the heat. We've talked about living again, a place like that. I don't even want my own kids to expect to find us in the same place 10 years from now. We want the freedom as well. Now I've gone on longer than necessary, Claudia, but you get my drift. My point is to help people whether they are clients, friends, or my own biological children, develop their own best skills to live the best life absolutely possible, to develop deep relationships, both with people where they live geographically and with people around the world with whom they have a connection. Those are not limited by geography. I'm 
hesitant to say, but I have to go ahead and say it. I think the people who are advising you in these ways are very small minded and frankly selfish. For somebody to not be encouraging you in your own best interest in that desire of your heart that you have is really nothing short of selfish. So evaluate it as such, but ultimately you and your husband have to be on the same page and make decisions that confirm the direction that you think you should be going for you and your family. Great question. Well, again, you're listening to Dan Miller on the 48 days online radio show. Let's see what's next. Pedro says, thanks for your great insights each week. I'm a licensed real estate broker working with a real estate company at a broker associate as a broker associate. I love what I do and I'm guided well in my business by listening to you and Dave Ramsey. Your podcast last week has me thinking and brainstorming ideas for creating residual income from my real estate work. My current model is very linear. I do the standard prospecting exercises such as floor time, mailers, calls, emails, and networking in ways fitting for my personality. I'm friendly, but still more introverted than your typical real estate salesperson. I'm also very um, analogical. You know, there's a new word analytical and logical. I understand analogical. I like that detailed a numbers guy and I'm driven by an opportunity to solve a problem. Any ideas for changing or fine tuning my model to create residual income. Thanks for what you do. When, when you are in real estate and you're doing prospecting, you're selling, yes, that is linear income, but you're right under the nose of other opportunities. If you are showing properties, you're showing 20 properties and you have this property that just came, it just came on. It's a great little duplex. Wow. You have the same opportunity as with your clients for you to purchase that you negotiate the purchase of that. You fix it up. You get two renters in there and all of a sudden you have moved into residual income and it's right there. It's not like a, a quantum leap in another direction or we have to go back and get more schooling certification, education or anything. It's right there. So just look for things that you could do. You can also take the intellectual capital that you have, the knowledge that you have. I mean, our, our, my friends, uh, Connie and Sheila have done that with their expertise. They now train other people how to do real estate investing, how to manage properties. They have instructional manuals on all kinds of things. So they have created residual income by creating instructional manuals based on their intellectual expertise. You can do the same as a realtor. All right. Th- here's a question, Dan, this comes from Seth in Texas. I've recently been fired from a retail job, but I'm trying to see it as a boon to finally pursue the work I love. I have a master's in history and English from Oxford, and I'm optimistic about finding traditional teaching work. My question is, can you think of some entrepreneurial ways I can further my teaching career outside of academia? I know you've mentioned Jim Hodges, but are there any other models? Thanks for everything you do. Well, Seth, yeah, I mean, with with the background that you have, certainly you ought to be able to find traditional teaching opportunities. You mentioned Seth Hodges and for any listeners who don't recognize it's a story I use in, I believe it was in no more Mondays where I talked about Jim had a teaching academic background and on going through a transition, getting out of the military was debating what to do and kind of dreaded the idea of going back in the classroom. And his wife asked him one fateful night, Jim, if money were no object, what would you do? And Jim responded immediately. I'd sit around the house all day and read old history books. 
Well, today, that's exactly what Jim does. He sits around the house and reads old history books. However, in doing so, he creates audio content. He brings alive the old history stories that are out there. And so he brings them alive and those create an audio product that is, he sells then primarily to homeschoolers. So he goes to about 10 homeschooling conferences around the country. He sells the product that he creates in reading old history books, but in doing so creates a nice, comfortable six figure plus income for himself, not having to be in the classroom, but again, capitalizing on his affinity for teaching. So it's just teaching in in unexpected way. So Seth, you could do the same with that. You can do workshops, you can do seminars, you can do teleseminars, you can do training for corporations. Those are all things that are teaching training models, but do not have the characteristics of just getting one more academic academic teaching position. Incidentally, Seth adds this this is cute addition here. He says in No More Mondays and in a recent podcast you quote an Anglican quote bishop from eleven hundred AD. There's a piece in the back of No More Mondays where I quote this Anglican bishop who talked about the fact that he wanted to change the world. You know, that was his goal. And as he was dying, he realized that, you know, rather than changing the world, he should have just changed himself. And from that, he could have changed perhaps his family, then his community, you know, then his country and perhaps then even the world. So it was a a real great kind of a metaphor for how you change the world. It's by changing yourself. You don't start with changing the world. But anyway, Seth takes issue with my using the term Anglican. I just want to point out that in 1100, there were no Anglicans as the Catholic church had not yet split. This of course doesn't dilute the principle. Sorry for my nerdiness. (laughs) Well, I, I don't mind at all your nerdiness. And it prompted me to go look at that a little bit. You know, and I've, I've been to that tomb that I talk about in Westminster Abbey in England, and it talks about the Anglican bishop from 1100 AD. So there's a lot of people who are misusing that, but technically you are all right. I mean, the church did not split and, uh, you know, up until gee, the days around Martin Luther King, you know, in the 1500s and so on. But in terms of the term Anglican being used, Anglican really just means of England. So there are a whole lot of things that are described as Anglican because they're connected with England rather than being the strict theological kind of term connected with the split in the Roman Catholic church. But uh, it did prompt me to go back and look at again. I love when people point out things where I maybe have made a boo-boo in the writing that I do. Well, Renee says, get Renee's question here from Boise, Idaho says, I've been working in the corporate world for almost a year now and absolutely hate it. I do have my college degree and I'm trying to discover what my true passion is. Recently, I've been presented with an opportunity to get involved with network marketing for a product I truly believe in. I have a very low income right now. And although I work 40 plus hours a week, but I'd like to make enough money to on the side to eventually quit my full-time job. I'm a little apprehensive about this network marketing, but really like the idea that it could, could be a potential business. What's your opinion about this type of work? Thanks so much. Love your book and podcast. Well, thanks uh, Renee for your question and kind comments. Here is the question. The question is not, have you found a company in network marketing where you like the product and it's a good company? The question is, does the business model fit you? It can be a great company. I mean, I I have some products that I take daily from a network marketing company because they're nutritional products that I really believe in. 
but I've never been involved in the network marketing side of the company, meaning that I'm going to go out and, and talk about how great the company is to other people and get them involved. So they come in, buy the products, sell them to their friends. I've never done that with that, this particular company. Now, believe me, I have in the past, I've been with, involved with every network marketing company out there as I was sorting through figuring out how this really does work. And I've figured out that it's not a good model for me. However, I know that it's a great model for a lot of people, but here's what you have to really look at. If you're familiar with the DISC profile, the D-I-S-N-C, you ought to be high in the I. You ought to be somebody who's real outgoing, gregarious, the cheerleader, the encourager, the person who breaks the silence in the elevator, the person who talks to 30 people as you're walking to your gate at the airport. If you're that kind of person, chances are you will do really well in network marketing. If you are not, chances are you'll struggle. So it has more to do with the business model than it does the product or the company. So ask yourself those things. If you are, in fact, somebody who's very outgoing, you are the cheerleader. Yeah, have fun with it. Just go with it, get involved, have fun with it. It's a legitimate business model, but it doesn't fit a whole lot of people. That's my beef with network marketing. If you've been listening or reading for long, you know that I, I have a lot of uh, criticism of network marketing simply because most people in network marketing recruit anybody who breathes. They try to convince you that no matter who you are, what your values are, what your personality is, you can make millions of dollars next month in network marketing. Well, we know that's not true. So again, it has to do with a perfect match in terms of your personality and the business model required in that those are going to determine if in fact it's something that fits for you. All right. This question comes from, um, Vince, who says, I've been the junior high director at my church for the last six years. Today, I had a lunch meeting with our senior pastor. He feels like it's time for me to move on. When I think about it, in some ways, I feel relieved about not having to come up with two different messages each week for Sunday and Wednesday, but I'm not sure what to do. I've always wanted to own a business for myself, but at age 49, is that still a good idea? Is there a market out there for a computer service that I could bring home 42000 a year and still pay for the insurance? Thanks, Vince. Well, Vince, there's a couple things here. You need to back up a little bit. If you just too quickly look at where can I make $42,000, you're going to make a misstep. You're going to go off in a wrong direction. You need to back up and look at what is your vocation or calling? What is it that you want to do that makes a difference in the world? Now, when you talk about being a junior high director in your church and having to come up with messages, I mean, usually that implies what most people see as even a more unique calling that somehow God spoke to you and said, you know, you should do this. Now I want to make clear, you know, all of us have a calling. Don't confuse calling with career. So you can have a calling to impact the lives of young people, you know, to make the world a better place to reduce pain and suffering in the world. However you want to frame that. If that is part of your calling, go back and revisit that. Then look at what our careers would fully embrace that. So if being a junior high director was an, a good fit for you, that's fine. But that doesn't mean you're limited to that. There ought to be 15 other careers that would fully embrace your vocation or calling as well. Now you have to be realistic in looking at this. I mean, at 49 years old, you may have reached a time where it's time to move on as a junior high director. I mean, when somebody is a youth pastor, usually that's a season of life. That's not something you start when you're 25 years old and you're still doing it when you're 65. There does come a time when you need to move on from that and rightfully so. So just go back and revisit 
What is your purpose, your calling, your mission, your destiny? Then from that, look at what are potential careers that would come out of that. Then what are particular jobs that would be daily applications of that? There are plenty of ways to make $42,000 a year, but don't start with that as a determinant of what direction you're going in. Well, here, here's a call. I want you to hear this one. This was one that um, it was just uh, so sweet in the way that it was put together. This comes from Diane. And I wanted you to hear this call. She's very concise. It only lasts about 50 seconds. Listen to this. Hi, Dan. My name's Diane. I was wondering how you serve God, how you serve people when you believe in God, but you have really no tolerance for people or they exhaust you just dealing with them. You love God. You love his nature, his beauty, what he produces, what he gives you and all, but you just really have a hard time dealing with people in general. Not that you hate people. It's just that they exhaust you. Would love to have an answer to that question. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Is that a great question or what? You know, it unpacks so many of the core issues of how we really do find our place, find what we do well. In 48 Days to the Work You Love, I talk extensively about identifying three things in your life that you have to blend if you're going to have meaningful work and a meaningful life, frankly. You have to identify what are your skills and abilities, what are your personality tendencies, and then what are your values, dreams, and passions. What Diane is addressing here really has to do with personality tendencies. As we look at personality tendencies, we're going to see people who are introverted, extroverted, people who are very nurturing and compassionate and kind, people who are very factual, just get to the point, don't bore me with all the details about how you feel today. We're going to see people all over the continuum here. There is no right or wrong, good or bad. Just acknowledge how God has uniquely gifted you and what that means in terms of the personality that you have. Not everybody is going to be real warm and fuzzy, real gracious and caring and compassionate and understanding and good listening. Not at all. I mean, there are people that I know that are very abrasive. They're very cold. They're curt. They're blunt. They're frank. They hurt other people's feelings and they accomplish some of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. I work primarily by myself. I work, as many of you may know, out of a building we call the sanctuary. It's a converted barn back at the back of our property here in Franklin, Tennessee, I love coming back here. It's very quiet. We've got waterfalls out front and bird feeders. And so I hear the birds and see nature, see the wild turkeys come up. I've spoiled them. I've been feeding them since they were little tiny babies. And I, they come up and eat a couple times a day here. Deer wander around the property, but there's usually no people. Now, does that mean that I'm uncaring, that I'm selfish, you know, that I don't like people? Well, being around people all day long would drain me emotionally, dramatically. I would not function at my best if I were forced to be in that kind of environment. So I choose to create the environment that gives me a lot of solitude. Solitude, solitude energizes me. Now, Dan, in your question, how do you survive when you serve people? I have created a lot of ways to serve people. 
I love framing my work in a way that it does just exactly that. You hear me read the notes from people. Dan, you've changed my life. You know, thank you for, you know, serving people. Thank you for caring and the things that you hear here. But that does not mean that I spend 80 hours a week, you know, sitting with people, crying with them about where their lives are going. I don't do that. I write. I do my blogs. I do the podcast. I speak a couple times a week. So I get out. Boom. It's very one directional. I'm in and out. So there are a lot of things you can do that still embraces your opportunities to serve people and care about them without putting yourself in emotionally draining situations. So I would just encourage you to do that. Structure your time, your days, your opportunities so that you aren't forced into more people contact than what is comfortable for you. Obviously, if you say you have little tolerance for people, I mean, believe me, there are a lot of days when I feel the same. I think you got to be kidding me. How can you be making those same decisions again that you were making six months ago that are obviously so self-defeating? Stop what you're doing, dummy. Well, but I hesitate to say those things, but if I were forced to be around people nonstop, those would probably come out repeatedly. But I, I don't, don't think you should beat yourself up for what you're stating here. I think you should just recognize if in fact you tend to be, maybe you have a more a stronger affinity for ideas than for people. That's fine. That's not right or wrong. If you tend to be more introverted and shy, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that at all. Recognize those things about yourself and then create an environment that embraces those rather than trying to just overcome those or somehow become different than the way you know you are. Well, Shane says, Dan, thanks for all you do. I'd like to know what your opinion is on getting small business loans. It takes me a while to put money to the side to invest in my businesses. I've had, I've tried buying wholesale collectibles on eBay to resell also affiliate websites, but found the long hours, no return on investment in the beginning, hard to overcome. I could not get any traction going, would quit before I ever got started. Would you recommend a business loan to get things going faster? No, absolutely not. Based on what you're telling me, Shane, what you're telling me is that you've tried different businesses and have not found a way to get a reasonable investment. So I say, look at the prototype, look at the precedent that you have set here. And if you find that you are not making money, don't get more money to throw at that. I mean, that's like the farmer who loses money selling every watermelon. So he buys a bigger truck to get more watermelon. That doesn't work. That's not a good business plan. However, I want to come back with a caveat if you and, and this is again kind of the basic principle i want you to hear if you have to make if you have to get a loan to make the business work then i think you're in trouble if you already have a business that does work that is is being profitable and a loan would help you leverage what you're already doing that is dramatically different let me give you an example I sell books. We, we sell lots of books here. No secret. We sell lots of books, 48 days books, you know, the other books that I've written product that I create and also the works of a lot of other authors. So we sell a lot of books like the little book of big ideas, mompreneurs and how to make use of a useless degree and things like that. Books that I did not write, but we sell them. We know how to sell them. So let's say that I am selling a particular book. Well, even, even my own book, Let's say that there was a special packaging for 48 days to the work you love. 
And now the publisher, that promotion has, I mean, this actually happened. I mean, there's a special packaging that was done for Costco and Costco does like a 90 day promotion from, for their products. They sell in all their stores. They rock and roll with that. Their initial order was 60,000 copies. I mean, amazing numbers. And they got, I don't remember, you know, I mean, I don't know, I mean, a hundred thousand additional copies or whatever. And then their promotion is over. They gather all the remaining copies up from the stores and send them back to the publisher. Now the publisher has a product that does not is not appropriately packaged to go on the bookshelf at Barnes and Noble. It's a different kind of packaging. They don't know what to do with it. I have an opportunity to buy those. We've already experimented. We know that we can sell those and we can get a 400% return on anything that we purchase. So if I pay $4 for it, I know I can sell it for $16 that's an incredible markup. We already know that we do that. I already have a built-in audience. It's just a number of just having them ready to send out the door. Would I be a player with my publisher for purchasing those at $4 a piece? Absolutely. But let's say that they have, let's say that they have, um, well, let's just make it easy. Let's just say that they have 15,000 sets of those. So they have 15,000 sets of those, but they're $4,000 or $4 a piece. So I need $60,000 to purchase that. Would I be willing to get a loan to purchase those in a heartbeat? Sure. Because all I'm doing, you know, I'm taking advantage, you know, let's say that I've got a a one week opportunity because otherwise they're going to put those into liquidation. So I purchased those. $60,000 on a bank loan, on a line of credit, whatever it happens to be. I purchase those. We start selling those. I take a $60,000 investment and we turn it into $240,000. Sure. Because I have the track record in place. I know our history. This is not a speculative business. So am I, would I advise getting a business loan? In that kind of a situation, yes, but not for a startup where you had no track record of success. Courtney says, Dan, I used to know what my calling was. I'm passionate about theater. This is a great question. You know, I, I'm, I'm probably going to have to end on this one, but it's, it's a good one to kind of do a wrap up on. I used to know what my calling was. I was passionate about theater. I actually got into the field full time, even though the hours were long. And most days I came home at all hours of the night after being in the field for a short period of time, I had a dramatic life change. I met my husband and my passions changed. I still love theater, but the hours required conflict with my time with my husband. So now I've moved and I've been out of the field for four years, settling for secretary jobs that I hate because I love my husband more than I love theater and the value And I value my time with him very much. I would really love to have my cake and eat it too, but I can't find a way to integrate my love of theater and my time with my family. Any ideas? Yes. Got lots of ideas. What a great position to be in Courtney. Don't make this an all or nothing choice. Look for and solutions. How could you still be involved in theater, but not commit to the grueling hours typically demanded? You may decide to participate in two major productions each year, or you may help produce two to three performances a year in your church. You might check out local dinner theaters where you could perform there just freak infrequently. 
whatever you choose to do. You know, I'm, I'm in the Nashville choir. It's a, a wonderful organization. It's just the Nashville choir. It's not connected with any church. There are people in there from all kinds of different backgrounds and we, we are very event focused. So there's no regular rehearsals. We don't have rehearsal every Thursday night. I would not commit to that. So it's event driven. So if we have an event coming up last year, we did a Gaither tribute, Bill and Gloria Gaither tribute to their music. It was phenomenal. So we had, I think three or four rehearsals. Then we did a great big show. It was sold out. I think we did two nights in a row. Spectacular event. I love being part of it. You know, get to sing behind people like Vince Gill and Amy Grant and Larnell Harris and Sandy Patty and the Gaither vocal band. <coughs> Lots of well-known names like that. We've done that for a long time. Um, we're now doing, I mean, just recently we did a few scattered Christmas events. You just choose whether or not you want to do those. We're now gearing up for a community hymn sing in March. It's going to be at the Skimmerhorn Symphony Center here in Nashville. It'll be a phenomenal event in packed out crowd. We'll sing with a lot of well-known people and go through a lot of well-known old favorite hymns, which I really enjoy. I get, so I get the enjoyment of singing professionally, but I'm not overwhelmed with the demands that that usually would bring. So in, in the way that you frame this, be careful about combining your career with your calling. So you say you used to know what your calling was. Well, your calling may be to be dramatic, to be artistic, to be creative, to be very expressive, to help other people unleash those skills in themselves. But those things don't relate specifically to a career or to what you're going to do with your time. So maintain your calling. Your calling has not changed, but your career application, in fact, may need to do so. So look at it in that way. It'll take the pressure off feeling like you're giving up everything. You're not. Don't give up your calling at all. Just look for other opportunities to put legs on that and have a lot of fun doing so. Well, we have been taking care of business here. Dan Meller, your host on the 48 Days Online radio show. I love spending this time each week with you answering the questions that you submit. You can shoot those in at the podcast link in 48days.com. Check out the growing group at 48days.net. Become a part of what we're doing here. Come to some of our live events and love to meet you personally. Just continue being part of the group that is finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.